I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the question of war. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Those were Dr. King's thoughts on his own death. With all that he had materially and by way of accolades and attention and power, he wanted to be remembered simply for loving and serving humanity. He said that though he might have money, he was never truly rich while the poor and the homeless went without. His belly was never truly full. He was never satisfied while children went without food. Dr. King felt literally connected to other people. He said that life's most urgent question is this, what are you doing for others? He said that we are inevitably our brother's keeper because of the interrelated structure of reality. The interrelated structure of reality. When I first read that, it reminded me of our seventh principle as Unitarian Universalists. Respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. And talking about that kind of interdependence, Dr. King said that for some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. He said this is the way God's universe is made, the way it is structured, the interrelated structure of reality, that we are inevitably our brother's keeper because of the interrelated structure of reality. Now, I follow the interdependent part. I believe in our seventh principle. It's the inevitability part that blows my mind. I struggle with the idea that it will make us inevitably care for one another. I see it as more of a conscious effort as opposed to inevitable. My concern is that it is only inevitable 
Because at some point, if we are not caring for one another, if we are succeeding while others fail, and we don't see our connection to those that are falling away, there will be some point at which things have gotten so bad for so many that the few that are doing well must finally do something for those who are suffering, lest we all go down. It will only be at that point that we will finally see, finally understand that we are interdependent. To take from the current struggle going on around the country, the 1% are not recognizing that they are interdependent with the 99%. And my concern stems from another of Dr. King's thoughts on interdependence. He warned us. He said, There is no separate black path to power and fulfillment that does not intersect white paths. And there is no separate white path to power and fulfillment short of social disaster that does not share that power with black aspirations for freedom and human dignity. Again, I agree that we are interdependent. The paths must cross. It's the social disaster part that I worry about. That in this dichotomy, the one with the power will simply roll over the one without. He said there is no separate white path to power and fulfillment short of social disaster that does not share that power. And I take from Dr. King's wisdom that the same rules, the same interrelated structure of reality that applies to black and white also applies to the rich and to the poor. And so there can be no path for the rich to power and fulfillment short of social disaster that does not share that power with the poor because we are interdependent. You see, it may be inevitable that we will care for one another because we are truly interdependent, but I'm deeply concerned it will take social disaster for us to see it, to understand it. And the poor will pay the price, are paying the price of that social disaster. Maybe it's the the work that I do, and, and for those of you that don't know, I work in juvenile justice, but I have the deepest concern that we as a society do not yet recognize our interdependence. I struggle to feel the inevitability of our connection. I see too much of the world that is isolated, people that are isolated from one another. I see a level of tolerance for other people's suffering. We've developed an ability to disassociate ourselves from the suffering of others. We can live in mansions and feast while children are hungry and cold. What I mean is, and, and this is an unfortunate example, but how is it that all of these grown-ups at Penn State University overlook so many children that were being abused. I don't think it had as much to do with their friendship with Sandusky, the alleged perpetrator, or the control, the financial control that a football program has on a college campus. The real reason those children were overlooked for a decade was they were other people's children. If it had been their child, 
their niece or nephew in that shower, the reaction would have been different. As I stand here, one in 45 children in this country are homeless. Right here in Shreveport, more than a quarter of children live in poverty. That's more than 17,000 children just in our parish. We have a 50% dropout rate between middle school and high school, 50%. The number one thing that children in prison have in common, an absent father. And yet in Caddo Parish for the last decade, more than 50% of the children born each year are born to single mothers. And according to the last census, our infant mortality rate in Caddo Parish just fell below Zimbabwe's. At my job, part of my job is running the juvenile detention center at the north end of Uri Drive. <clears throat> and we had a we had a 13-year-old boy. He's, he's legally blind. The police see him one day playing with a dog through a fence, and they mistake him for someone who has been reported to be stealing dogs in that neighborhood, and so they chase him. And when they catch him, this 13-year-old ended up with one eye swollen shut and a nearly two-inch gash in his mouth. The same child we soon learn, and remember he's legally blind, but he also has no glasses, and he's failing school. No tutoring, no special education, no help with his vision. The same child we soon learn is living with a woman to whom he is not related. The, the backstory is he was one of six children living with his mother in New Orleans in August of 2005. His mother, unfortunately, is addicted to crack and alcohol, and so when Katrina hit, each of the children went with any able adult that knew the family. And so the children were scattered all over the country, and here he is, six years later, living with his mother's so-called friend, in Shreveport. He's separated from all of his siblings. He can't really even remember where he's lived. He remembers New Orleans, several places in Texas, back to Louisiana, and somehow to Shreveport. And then the woman that he's living with, she gets a boyfriend who lives in East Texas, and she wants to move in with him, but the boyfriend doesn't want the young man to live with him, so she leaves him here with a neighbor for a year. When they break up, she moves back here and, and takes him in again. But the point is, is that every system has failed this young man. I make better plans for boarding my pets. And this is right here in Shreveport. Again, maybe it's the work that I do, but a 27% poverty rate, a 50% dropout rate, absent fathers and children being treated like used furniture is a recipe for disaster, for social disaster. 
And Dr. King unfortunately recognized this, that the poor and the homeless were invisible to most of society. He said, The poor in our country have been shut out of our minds and driven from the mainstream of our societies because we have allowed them to become invisible. He said, The well-off and the secure have too often become indifferent and oblivious to the poverty and deprivation in their midst. And of course, this is nothing new. It's been happening forever. It's not just Dr. King that recognized it. It's certainly not just me. This has been happening since the urbanization of civilization. But if this social disaster is happening, has been happening to the poor, it seems to me that we have to do what we can to make a conscious effort to be our brother's keeper rather than waiting for the inevitable. Dr. King challenged us, and each year in his memory, I think it's appropriate that we renew the challenge to ourselves. I understand that the issue of poverty can seem so overwhelming that nothing can truly fix it, and so we do what we can. We donate, we volunteer, we do what we can. Dr. King challenged us, though, to do more. He said the true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. Now, the good news is that we as Unitarian Universalists have risked much in our history for others. You may remember Susan Caldwell summarizing our history back in October, but I was moved by it. Sir Isaac Newton, considered by many to be the greatest and most influential scientist who ever lived, risked death rejecting Trinitarianism. The founders of our country, John and Abigail Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, Paul Revere, all Unitarians. The scientist who discovered oxygen, Joseph Priestley, was also a Unitarian minister who fled to America seeking religious freedom. Clara Barton, who organized the American Red Cross. Philosophers Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. The scientist who challenged all religions with his theory of evolution, Charles Darwin found that evolution did not contradict his Unitarian beliefs. Anti-slavery activist Julia Ward Howe, who also originated Mother's Day as Mother's Day for Peace, was a Unitarian. Susan B. Anthony, abolitionist and an activist for women's rights. Louisa May Alcott, better known as the author of Little Women, was also a strong abolitionist and a Unitarian. Mary Shelley, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Clarence Darrow, Horace Mann, Sylvia Plath, not only all Unitarians, but all activists in one field or another, all fellow boat rockers. And one of my personal heroes, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, 
the 24-year-old Massachusetts man who led the first African-American regiment in the Civil War, was a Unitarian. Like Susan told us in October, and Judy reminded us last week, it was our chalice symbol that was used in World War II as a symbol for the underground, for those who were hiding and transporting Jews to safety. Ours is the faith that sent the largest percentage of ministers to the South to march with Dr. King, among them James Reeb, who marched in Selma in 1965 and unfortunately paid the ultimate price when he was beaten to death by a group of white men. Our very own church sent the largest white contingent to the Civil Rights March in Gina, Louisiana for the Gina Six, and my client, the youngest of the Gina Six. And when Dr. King said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, he was actually paraphrasing the Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker, who said in 1853, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Ours is a faith that has a long history of being our brothers and sisters' keepers. And so I must have faith, we must have faith, that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. But the truth is, I believe that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice because I believe that over that long arc of time, good people do the right thing and do the work that is necessary for justice to be possible. I don't see inevitability. I see good people who stand up. I think we have to continue in our Unitarian Universalist traditions and take the arc of the moral universe in our hands and bend it toward justice. I want to do more than hope that we as a society will inevitably see that we are all interdependent. I think we have to continue to work and to volunteer and to donate. I think we have to continue to speak out on the issues of racism, gender equality, equal rights for the LGBT community, and we have to continue to make the poor visible through our work with interfaith and community renewal so that the poor cannot be pushed from our collective minds. I know that many of you already do this in your work and your volunteerism and your political voice, but because of my work, I'm asking you to do one more thing. It's a simple but powerful notion. If we are consciously our brother's keeper, then we are all protectors of all children. And all children should be treated as our own children. So the, the 13-year-old who was separated from his siblings by Katrina, two of my probation officers walked into my office one day and told me that story, and they introduced me to the young man. 
and they asked for permission. They asked for the budget to find his family. So for several days during work and on their own time, they called every small town police department starting at the East Texas border heading west. They called child protection in South Louisiana and Texas. They called probation and parole in Texas for the mother. And then one day they walked into my office and they told me that they had found his grandfather and his aunt who had been searching for all of those kids, those six kids, since September of 2005. This young man who is failing in school, legally blind, having run-ins with the police, being passed off to strangers, and losing faith in humanity, well, it turns out he has an older brother who he adored. His brother is playing high school football in South Louisiana and is doing well. He has three younger siblings that he couldn't really remember, but they are all living with the family in South Louisiana and doing well. And when we put him on the phone with his aunt, she called him Pac-Man. It was his nickname that he had when he was little because he ate a lot. But it's a nickname that he couldn't remember and hadn't been called for six years. And when he heard it, he collapsed to his knees and broke down in tears. The two probation officers I am honored to work with bought him glasses and drove him to South Louisiana to meet his family. Now, unfortunately, if you were doing the math, that family is still searching for one child. So you see, I believe it is not inevitable. We have to see all children as our children. In every action you undertake, every time you are involved in a community program, every time you vote, every time you have a voice in any process, if the program or project you are working on involves children, ask yourself if the outcome the result of the process is good enough for your own child. When we vote, we must do more to demand that our leaders not simply give lip service to the poor, not simply give lip service to education, not simply give lip service to other people's children. And if they do, if they pay only lip service, we must react as if they have done so to our own children. If it is unacceptable for your child, you must demand that changes be made and boats may need to be rocked. We have to consciously be our brother's keeper, for I fear that the only thing inevitable for the poor is suffering. As proud Unitarian Universalists, we must continue in our long tradition of being boat rockers and of being the keepers of our brothers and sisters and children. Thank you.